What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. I have no idea about monads and functors, and I have no idea about mutexes and semaphores. And I right. prefer working with Elixir because it doesn't require me to. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Beam Radio. I am joined, as always, by our fabulous panel of hosts. Today we have with us Bruce Tate. Hey, Bruce. Hi from Chattanooga. Welcome, Bruce. We have Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Hi, Alex. We've got Lars Vickman. Hello. As well as Steven Nunez. Hello. Hey there. And finally, Josh Adams. Hey, Josh. Hey! <laughs> that was good. I really loved the extra level of enthusiasm that you brought to that. Before we dig into today's main host and topic, we would, of course, love to hear a word from our wonderful sponsor, Graxio. Bruce, what's new with Graxio? It's going to seem like Groundhog Day, but we're we're releasing five shows at one time. So um, what's what's happening in Elixir is that we just had this machine learning announcement from Jose, and what Groxio is doing is going from NERVs to uh, to Julia. So if you really want to know what machine learning is about, we're going into machine learning for laymen without all the math jargon. So it should be pretty appropriate. Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, there'll be some maybe renewed or even additional interest in some of the Julia stuff that you have going on in light of this very cool NX stuff that's come out. So I definitely encourage our listeners to check out the Julia content on Graxio. All right, moving right along. Today's main host, our main cast member, is our very own Steven Nunez. Hey, Steven. Hello. Again, hello. Again. Hello, hello. hello. Great. Uh, so Steven has been with us here on Beam Radio for a few episodes now, and we're so happy that he joined the panel. Steven and I actually used to work together, uh, both in a teaching role at the Flatiron School and an engineering role, which some of our listeners might know from the episode in which I was the main host. But before I give too much away about you, I would love for you to introduce yourself a little bit more. Yeah, so I'm Steven Nunez. I'm currently a senior engineer at GitHub working on code spaces. Um, you might've heard a little bit of a buzz there. Uh, we're offering full engineering environments in the cloud and that's launching soon. Uh, I actually got started in tech by going to a technical school that had a concentration in something completely unrelated to programming. I went in for network security. So I got a bunch of fancy sounding CompTIA or, uh, certifications, A+, Net+, Security+, I'm a certified ethical hacker, all the sort of things that you can take tests for to prove, <laughs> did all that stuff. Uh, wound up working at a bank and realized it was just a ton of inefficiency. So I taught myself how to program. I kind of got to the limits of what bash and batch files could do for you. And I really fell in love with Ruby um, and programming in general, just being able to create things uh, was, was really, really cool. I, on a whim, took a web development course with uh, a guy named Avi Flambaum in New York City uh, to learn Rails, to learn web development. And that turned into me TAing with him for about a year. Um, and I think it was there that I learned you could get a lot out of teaching people. Uh, for yourself, I had just sort of learned web development and got a chance to teach it and realized that my skills got way better really, really fast. Um, so I decided to keep doing that. Uh, he went off to start the Flatiron School um, and I looked on until they could sign paychecks before I joined uh, Startup Life, I guess. Uh, after that, I actually became a real boy and became a developer. Uh, I joined an agile consultancy uh, named Cyrus Innovation in New York City. Uh, and then I still taught evenings at General Assembly. 
and I really, really loved the teaching work. The teaching work was great because people got jobs and they learned things and you could see them get, come to you with promotions because they learned this skill. And I'm, I was happy to be able to help with that. Um, I finally joined the Flatiron School originally to start their engineering department. Uh, they had zero tech when they started. It was just sort of like piazza boards and message boards and they wanted to build this uh, learning platform. So I joined to do that. A spot opened up to teach our fellowships that we did with the city of New York in partnership with the city of New York. Did that for a while, taught. Um, I met Sophie there, which I understand. Uh, Sophie thought I was very scary when she first met me. Well, cause of that thing that you do. So Stephen does this thing when you come to him with a problem and he's trying to make you feel better by like downplaying it. So he goes, oh God, oh no. And sort of, and so on. And if you don't know him, like you think that you've really messed up big time and you've created some sort of insurmountable bug that like no one will ever be able to untangle. So I remember being like just a touch intimidated by that until I got to know you a little bit better. Oh no. Oh boy. Here we go. Um, yeah, so I, at the Flatiron School, did a bunch of stuff. So taught a bunch, wrote curriculum, uh, but more importantly, really got a chance to, to flex some Elixir muscles there. Um, we wrote a ton of applications in Elixir, which I'll talk about in a bit. And today I, I blog at hostiledeveloper.com. Come read my angry posts. Uh, I live in the Bronx with my wife, toddler, and a lovely kind of getting chunky dog named Charlie. Charlie can't afford to get chunky because he's so big and strong. You need to keep him like slim so that you can try to walk him once. Yeah. Um, so once I did an afternoon of dog sitting for, for Charlie and uh, Stephen and his wife came and dropped off the dog and you were giving me this whole tutorial about how to walk this dog. And I was kind of like internally rolling my eyes. Like I have a dog. I know how to walk a dog. This is going to be fine. I get out there with Charlie, who I should say is perfectly sweet, like the sweetest dog. And he takes one step and Amelia, I'm like, oh no, oh God. Like if he wants to go and do anything, it just felt like trying to walk like this enormous beast. And I just knew that if there was something that he wanted to do that I didn't want him to do that, you know, all would be lost, but it went okay. You know, 20 nervous minutes later and we made it back. You had both of your arms and everyone was, you know. Yes, exactly. Happy. As did all passerby. So come on down to Tennessee and we'll let you do some water skiing. And the experience is very similar to walking a very large dog. <laughs> Actually, I could see that. I could see that being similar. So Stephen, do you want to take us through your Elixir story a little bit? That's something that we always like to hear, uh, you know, from each of our panelists as they step into this main hosting role. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I think this is one that you're kind of familiar with. You're you're a part of it, Sophie, because you're a part of my uh, the cult I was building to love Elixir. So I guess it started out kind of early on when I was doing a lot of Ruby and Rails development. It was something you would hear a lot, which was just like throw money at it. Um, like applications, like a Rails application is slow, who cares? Just throw money at it. And the idea was that servers are cheap and developers are expensive. So keep them happy, keep them writing in a language that they enjoy and things would just become more and more performant. This had the bad assumption or the, the assumption that wouldn't stand up where uh, processes would continue to get faster over time. And we eventually wound up hitting a power wall, right? Where the fastest processors that you can buy now, single core are still around like two, seven gigahertz, right? We were sort of expecting this like exponential growth to continue forever, right? We broke Moore's law a little bit. Uh, so it became that if you needed to, if you wanted to write performant applications, you'd need to start thinking multi-core. So Ruby had a bunch of things going against it. 
running Ruby on multiple cores on the most popular implementation of Ruby was really not possible, right? MRI, YARV, for anybody who knows, uh, has this concept called the global VM lock or the, the global interpreter lock, the GIL or the JVL, or GVL, where you would basically run on one native thread forever and ever. So I'm looking at Ruby and say, Ruby, I love you. You are an amazing language. You're super expressive, but I can't get multi-core going on you. Yeah, so I remember about that time, there was a paper that came out that was called the free lunch is over. You remember that? That yeah. really, that talked about the power wall. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's such a sort of a, a, a moment of reckoning for us as developers who were just like writing these like single core applications. But if you look at the other things, you're either going to go off and write some language that is not as fun to write as something like Ruby. And if you do start writing, you know, concurrent programs using multiple threads, you now run into the world of having to know threads and locks and semaphores and mutexes and this whole other bit of uh, set of work that you have to learn about, which is possible, but all the literature that I went to was really, really hard to get my, my head around. So I started to feel a little bit bad that you're just going to have to expect Ruby, writing code in Ruby is going to be slow. And then it happened. I saw uh, there was a show called Peep Code that was run by Jeffrey Rosenbach back in the day. Um, and he would have these sessions where he would have a uh, play-by-play -play where he'd have like a real developer, fix, you know, do a real problem. And he had Jose on. And the name of the episode was Meet Elixir. I don't think you can find it now. But it was him basically just like using Elixir. He developed this language and he was kind of showing it to the world. And I was blown away. The language was beautiful. And spinning off concurrent tasks was something else. It was just, he kicked off tasks and he was, he proved, he opened up the, con the console, opened up HTOP and was like, look at this. It's working on multiple cores. I did that. And to me, that was so cool uh, because it was almost like you, just by using the language, you got more performance. Like there was no extra overhead that he had to think about to say like, make this work faster or make this work, you know, in parallel, which I really, really loved. Um, I saw that and it was like almost instantly started to evangelize this language. Have you heard about this thing, this Elixir thing? It's great. It's amazing. Um, and this was like pre Elixir, like 0.10, where it's like, no one's going to use this thing. Um, but I started learning about the beam. I started to learn about uh, all of the sort of like programming models and then just realized this is a really well thought out system. Like this is built on something that is really incredible and can stand the test of time and has. Um, I eventually wore some people down at the Flatiron School and we wrote a distributed, distributed IDE with hot code upgrades. We built this application that scaled across, I think it was something like 50 servers across around the world. Um, and at the end, we had at least five applications and eScripts in production. Um, and I still stand by my decisions at the time. I still say that Elixir gives you a higher ceiling than anything out there from the start. It's easy to start. It's an amazing community and you can do a lot with less. So Stephen, I'm curious, um, when, when I listened to most Elixir developers that came from Ruby, there was a, a time a moment of crisis, right? So they didn't quite understand, they had all this power at their fingertips and didn't understand the abstractions to actually apply. So you have to break through that wall. And what did you do to break through that wall? Uh, that's a really good question. I think uh, after reading Elixir in action, I think I started to get through some of the walls um, that are just beyond, I make objects, which in Elixir, I make functions and I return things. I think that Sasha has a really good way of sort of like not 
being afraid of showing you Erlang, which I think is really the key, like putting it right in your face and saying like, we're going to use these libraries, these paradigms. This is how we spin things up. This is how we debug in on the beam, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, I'm glad I found that book. Um, but also even books like Dave Thomas's book was incredible. Like programming Elixir was really, really good at sort of showing you, yes, it's nice. Yes. It's, it's the syntax is clean. It might look like Ruby, but these are all the really cool things you can do because it's on the beam. Yeah. So there was this really cool moment that, um, that where Jose had taken this feature, this tiny feature called the pipe operator from ML and it was kind of an afterthought in the language until it started showing up in, in the Prague books, right? And you can see that for a while, all the subtitles had the pipe operator in it. And, and it seems like object-oriented developers have this set of features that they use for glue. And when we move to a functional language, all of us try to say, how do you do inheritance? And how do you do object-oriented composition in this way? until we actually see that that pipe operator and understand that you can use that to solve iterative problems. Yeah, and I think that the more, I think that we need to get, we're moving into that next phase of educating sort of the community to use a lot of the CRC stuff that you're talking about, Bruce. So this idea of it's all about data transformation. Just like get that in your head and it's, it's the way you can build these applications so that they're easy to maintain, easy to understand. Um, so I'm happy that that's sort of like the the next leg of this is is coming along. I think the first one was like, hey, isn't it cool? You can do all this stuff and the platform is really awesome. It's like, okay, you've built something on a really awesome platform. How do we make it so that it's maintainable and easy to read and fun to work on? Yeah, and I think that's kind of one of the things that, I'm sure I've said this before as well, but first drew me to Elixir. Uh, you know, when Steven was first getting really excited about it, he would set up these little like, sort of workshops or tutorials just for honestly whoever was around and whoever was interested whether it was our students or colleagues or whatever and I think I was at a point in my career where I didn't really have the use case for like this amount of power and this level of concurrency but I was still sort of attracted to the syntax and attracted to the just the developer experience of writing this code and building these pipelines and sort of seeing how things flow together functionally and I think that's something that I do hear from people who are coming from OO who are I don't want to say more junior, but yeah, maybe earlier on in, in their careers, the way that I was and starting to get interested and intrigued by Elixir and what you can do with it. Yeah. So it seems like you have to do a couple of things when you're getting a language adopted. The first is that you have to find a niche community. And Jose did that with the syntax in the same way that, that Java pulled in C users and C++ users by just adopting those curly braces, right? So Jose did the classic bait and switch with the syntax and that brought in the community. And then, but that's not the only transformation that programmers have to go through to adopt Elixir, right? So it's also, how do you work in a functional way? And that's in one dimension. And then also, how do you work in this multi-process way, which is different than the Java way, instead of like semaphores and locks and things like that, you have this actor-based model with a lot less blocking and uh, and this this clean messaging paradigm. So you have to work that in, and then then there's this whole paradigm of what do you do with OTP and this unique kind of combination of functional composition with message composition and laying that kind of gives you state. So there are all these really tough things to crack through at once. 
And, and Stephen, just kudos to you for kind of recognizing that this was something that had some oomph behind it and, and getting people on board quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think about I think about this a lot. Like maybe it's from teaching or sort of thinking about onboarding people to a language. But I think about like the ever increasing awesomeness of Elixir, where you like, you know, you come for the you, some nice syntax. It's cool. You like the way it looks. Fine. It's clean. Low ceremony. Then you get to pattern matching. Then you get to like the pipe operator, and then you develop like really good core. You know. You understand like, the core functionality of the language and then you're like okay well now we can do this concurrent stuff with tasks and agents and gen servers okay cool and you can actually build these supervision trees with supervisors and applications oh cool and there's this like distribution bit that is all that's like a totally different beast but it's like the longer you hang out the more you're like oh there's a thing for that and it's amazing by the way we built this thing and it's running on like a billion computers right now so it works yeah it's definitely one of those languages and and uh, and runtimes where I mean, you could be programming it for five, six, seven years, and you're still learning and learning and learning. And it's still a very active, uh, like virtual machine. Like, what was it? OTP, what was it 22? They released, or they uh, replaced PG2 with PG. So they have new uh, process lookup uh, mechanisms in place. And then now you have persistent terms. Now we're getting the JIT hopefully later this year. Like it's still a very, very active uh, virtual machine. And there's still, you know, lots to be excited about. And so that ceiling, I feel, just keeps on getting a little bit higher and higher every, uh, you know, every year. And uh, it's, it's exciting stuff. Yeah, one, one bit that was sort of interesting, uh, I was working with uh, some team members at the Flatiron School, and they were like, we're running this app in Elixir and Phoenix, but when do we get to start to do all the like, the gen servers and like our own supervision tree stuff. Cause it's a web app that had some background jobs. And I was like, what you don't realize is you're building off of the abstractions and it's being, it's happening for you in the background somewhere. So that Phoenix application that you're doing, that controller is called in a process that had, you know, a load balancer built in and all those channels that you're using. Well, that's using all this other stuff. Like sometimes being on the platform get, lets you get the benefit of all the platform has to offer without you having to take that extra step to say, oh, I need a gen server. Like, no, I can just fire off a task. Or, you know, that time you use spawn there, like, you're welcome. That's, that's, that's the benefit. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, it's a really awesome moment when you recognize that all of this development has been going one place for, for a long time in a couple of different areas, right? So a couple of examples, one of them writing with, with the Live View book with Sophie has kind of reminded me how a couple of years ago, we were starting to, to look at web development and saying, hey, it's not a single page app anymore. Well, you can make this iterative step towards that with this thing called channels and in keeping the state live in memory for a little while. And then you can make another iterative step with, with this thing called live view, where you take that state and automatically do the diffs for the state and ship that down to the client by pushing the JavaScript that everybody's writing anyway and pushing that into the infrastructure. And this happens over and over, right? So we just saw Jose's machine learning announcement and that's none of that stuff is accidental. It's having the, the dirty NIFs, which is a way to build clean integrations into into systems that might have longer response times. And then you have this thing called the protocol, which allows you to do a dispatch based on a particular type. You have a language which builds on top of bare metal abstractions. 
And then you have this thing called macros, which allows you to have different compile targets for the regular function and the differential equation, which is the auto diff, which is kind of the secret sauce in all of this. It's all turtles all the way down from the very beginning. And that's so exciting to see. I am really curious how much of these are happy accidents and how many were on purpose. But uh, the NX stuff specifically has me pretty excited because I did a, uh, a lot of uh, CUDA and C++ stuff at university and during my master's uh, thesis, it was all CUDA and GPU programming. And I thought I would never touch it again. So this is a, a nice uh, segue into, into that. Uh, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll readopt CUDA and NX. Yeah, and the M1 laptops and the new, um, the, the machine language chips that are starting to come out. And it's, it's getting to be that this is where you have to be. It's table stakes. And what's so shocking to me about this announcement is that instead of just matching the table stakes with, with the, the CUDA stuff and, and the types and the tensors, Jose raised the stakes by going straight to auto diff, which is kind of the razor's edge of, of what's happening in, in machine learners right now. Bring it back to uh, Stephen's Elixir journey for a little bit. So you kind of just snuck in there at the end, Stephen, that you eventually wore enough, wore enough people down at the Flatiron School to put five Elixir apps and eScripts into production. I want to dig into that a little bit more. What was that adoption journey like? Because you really did spearhead it uh, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So we wound up uh, building a first version of this IDE. This is the first project, like the flagship project that we shipped. Um, we wound up building a first version of it using uh, Go and Ruby. So sort of like giving you access to file system events in Go uh, over a WebSocket and then uh, doing some other stuff in Ruby to mimic the terminal. And we started to run into some performance issues. There were a couple of things. So for starters, we, we were running out of inodes. So just for people who don't know, like your operating system can identify a certain number of files. This, is, this has nothing to do with space. It has to do with the number of files that can be on a system, right? So you have an inode identifier. And we were like, well, maybe if we containerize, we can sort of isolate the file system inside of the, the container and then not have to worry about that whole thing. You run out of inodes when you have hundreds of students running node modules. So they were all doing NPM install and it just downloaded a billion files per lab. Uh, so we had a bit of a crisis. We're like, well, let's containerize. So we were th rethinking it and sort of looking at some of the stuff. And I, I sold a lot of the observability, a lot of the uh, remote access to shells, looking at sessions. And even like the early versions, we were able to jump on people's sessions through like a web interface. Um, and people were sort of on board with that. They were like, okay, that's cool. So me and a couple of other developers built uh, a prototype in Elixir that connected to an Atom client at the time. And it worked. We were able to sort of like get it running and we containerized, we, we opened up a rocket container at the time. Uh, people were able to access their things. We had our gem built in and that was all great. Funny story, when we actually launched it, uh, this is a great way to learn about pooling. Uh, so we, we brought down the servers, everyone still had their terminal open and it was trying to reconnect. So like everything was trying to reconnect to the old servers. As soon as they came up, they would try to get on. We bring our application in and immediately just get hammered because we had all the hundreds and hundreds of students who were using the IDE, try to connect and make a new container on these poor servers and immediately brought it down, brought the old version back, added pool boy. Uh, to kind of kind of throttle that uh, 
provisioning process. And then it got it up and it worked. And we have servers up that have been up for, for like, I think we had one that was up for like two years. I had no sort of like downtime because we were doing hot code upgrades in place. Um, and it, it, all the promises are true. All the, 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 the things you wish you could, what you sell Elixir for that fault tolerant distributed, like, you know, upgrading they're they're true. Um, high code upgrades are a little complicated though, but you know, with coolness comes complexity. Uh, but then once we had that first win, I think we wound up uh, building separate applications. I needed a script for the IDE, so we wrote that in Elixir. And then it sort of like became a language we could build something in. I think the, the litmus test for whether or not we build it in Elixir or not was, do are there any specialized gems that exist in Ruby that do exactly the thing we want to do, right? Like, is there some like API that has like an official SDK that's like less work to do? Um, and if not, then if you want to build it in Elixir, build it in Elixir. And if I was leading it, I did. It's really cool to me to watch kind of the, some of these, these features being tied together in interesting ways, just because we had to wait to get the abstractions right, but now they're right and it's time to make the connections. And the live dashboard is a, a great, a great version of that. This might be a good time to shift gears and ask Stephen to introduce us to the main topic for today. And I think you set the stage very nicely by sharing a little bit about your Ruby to Elixir journey, but I don't want to give anything away. So I'll hand it over to you. So the topic is going to be, what can Ruby learn from the beam? Um, if you want to hear more about this, come check out my talk at CodeBeam. Well, I guess it comes out afterwards. Check it out on YouTube if it's out. Um, the beam has been out, it's been battle tested, uh, but it has a very approachable concurrency models, uh, model rather. Actors give you this great tool for modeling real world problems and they're super performant because they're right in parallel. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about what Ruby can learn from the beam in that respect. Like I mentioned in my story where we had this issue with Ruby that it, it does not run because of the JVL, GVL, um, you don't get those parallel processes running. So one thing, if you could take it away, uh, take this from the beam Ruby is know that concurrency matters um, and you have to make it a no brainer. So the first thing I'll say is having a way to make concurrency, not just easy, but as a side effect of writing idiomatic code is huge. So we all know what gen servers are. We all know what a ta tasks are and agents are if you're running Elixir and they're super easy to use. Uh, Elixir makes it easy to accidentally do the right thing, right? Your, app, your application just sort of just works. It's fast. You use the normal uh, tools and you're writing performant code, which is amazing. Um, Ruby recently added this thing called, these things called Raptors, which are Ruby actors. Um, and they're cool. They actually run processes in parallel, which is exciting. I fired up a quick test to just like run a random number generator on like 15 cores and my computer lit up and I was super excited. Um, it's a big deal. I think that one thing that Ruby has to learn now is that there have to be common abstractions that come out of this. A Raptor is basically just spawn, right? And while you could do some incredible things with just spawn, I don't think we would be using Elixir as much if we didn't have the gen server and OTP and the agreed upon messaging and uh, the agreed upon interfaces. So definitely do that. So yeah, we want to make the cost of running these concurrent applications super low and super easy. So it's interesting to me that I, I thought a lot about this when seven languages in seven weeks came out. And so at that point, I was looking for what to do next. I was I read the free lunches over um, nearly five years after it was originally purchased. 
and it just freaked me out, right? I couldn't, I couldn't function for a little while. And so I was trying to do some research for myself to understand where language development was going. And one of the conclusions that I came to was that you had to make basic assumptions at the very beginning to make the language work. And then I've been wrong about a billion times since then, right? Like a good, good example is that JavaScript breaks like all those rules to give you a, a functional like um, development paradigm, but some of us feel like that's the wrong road. So you know, Stephen, I just, I don't know here, right? So one of the cool things about Ruby is that you can open up a class <laughs> to get some really dynamic behavior. One of the, the problems with Ruby is that you can open up a class to get some really dynamic behavior and your classes, the building blocks of the language are inherently mutable. I don't think that's unique to Ruby either. Like Python has the same problems with the global interpreter lock. It has the same problems with being very, very, very single threaded, hard to make run very quickly unless you offload via some queues or Redis or running multiple processes and all, all of the overhead that comes with that. Basically re-implementing actors usually. <laughs> Then we have things like JavaScript, like, oh, it was so fast. It could do the 10K concurrent whatever thing back in the day when that was impressive. But it does it in a single process in a really optimized, but not optimal way. <laughs> so I feel like one of the big advantages of Erlang and Elixir, and like Elixir just building on Erlang in this, is that it's not an accident that it's functional, but the functional and the functional paradigm gives you this immutability and this isolation that makes the actor model make so much sense. And I think Ruby is probably wise to introduce these reactors, but I am I will be surprised if they can manage to push through with like adoption and making people actually use them well because there will have to be so many foot guns so many foot guns with this kind of shared state and like even, even the beam has some some challenges with like uh, handling large strings large binaries and stuff where you can shoot yourself in the foot if you try really hard uh, i'm looking at you a specific xml builder library but generally it does the right thing and you don't have to think about like okay am i mutating this am i this or that no like any language that tries to bolt actors on after the fact i think has significant challenges and i'm really curious to see if ruby managed to push through with this yeah I, I totally agree with that and i feel like i have the same like little voice in my head that's wondering those things and so steven i know you've been hacking a little bit on some projects with raptor lately so just what's your experience been have you felt like trying to marry the actor model and, you know, mutable objects is, you know, a path towards disaster or what, what's the deal? Yeah. I mean, I think for the most part in some of my experiments, I've been able to get a pretty good gen server model going and a pub sub model that I can publish messages and like recover and return, uh, you know, some light supervision work in there. But I, I think you guys are right. Like, I think that this is gonna be one of the things that is gonna be make adoption hard. Um, once you step outside of math 
and just like a couple of libraries here and there, you start to bump into why Raptors are like need a little bit of work and they're not insurmountable. Um, one of them is uh, anytime you call out to a library that has a class instance variable or a static uh, variable, it is not happy. It doesn't allow it. So you have to kind of like rewrite your libraries in such a way that they are racked or compliant. That's one thing that I would have liked to see the, uh, the core team do before uh, like releasing it. Raptors are still experimental, so we'll give them a pass and we're just trying it out. But that's that's one thing that is kind of like rough. Yeah, and I think that one of the problems is that you can either protect from mistakes in the core, or you can protect from mistakes by having everyone that ever builds a Ruby library or a Python library or a Java library make every decision correctly every time. One of those will work. <laughs> I like that. Um, well, that that's kind of like one of the, we're talking about a couple of the other lessons that I think that the Beam can teach Ruby. One of them is that immutable data needs to be a first-class citizen in, in the language. Um, right now, when you send messages in a Raptor, you are uh, copying the data, which again has the memory concern of being kind of expensive depending on the data you're copying. Uh, you can also do this thing where you can specify and say like, no, no, actually we'll move this data to the Raptor, right? So you get the efficiency, but the calling process now loses access to that data, which is just another one of those things that I think I'm not smart enough to kind of like get my head around like threads and mutexes and semaphores. So I, I think that they're, they're triangulating around a way to get it, but I think immutability is, is key. We have to have to have that. Yeah, so there was this book that was written by a guy named Brian Getz, and he's, I think, the product manager for, for Java Now, which means he kind of controls the direction of it. And um, it was called Java Concurrency. Java, uh, I can't remember. We'll, we'll look it up. But the premise was that implementing concurrency in Java doesn't work exactly like you think it does, right? So there's a there are a lot of things that might happen out of sequence and a lot of things that compilers optimize by doing things in parallel. And the, um, the mutability is a huge part of this overall equation. And so what Brian did was he pushed some, some programming guidelines in the community at large, and one of those guidelines was that you should be using final a lot more than you do in Java. And I can't remember what the what conference was and, and who who the talk was by, but um, one of the points that the person was making was that the the functional aspects of Erlang kind of came as a result of a like a need to do these things. Like it, they didn't set out to make a functional programming language they came across these concepts and said, we need them in order to achieve this kind of uh, uh, concurrency model. And uh, I think that's one of the things that I liked about uh, Elixir when I started off, where it was like, it was FP by accident and I didn't have to learn like what a monad was or what a functor was or a, uh, what are, you know these other, <laughs> these other uh, fantasy land type of uh, terms. And uh, I kind of like that. It's like, a, it's a very pragmatic functional programming language. and. You, you, you get to the point of appreciating what you know, monads and functors and all those things are, but that, that can come later and you can still reap the benefits early on. So are monads and functors and all of that, this basically the FP equivalent of mutexes and semaphores because those are also very made up words to me. They are precisely as transparent 
or rather very, very opaque. I have no idea about monads and functors, and I have no idea about mutexes and semaphores. And I right. prefer working with Elixir because it doesn't require me to get into it. I've tried to read up on monads a few times. It's like a brick wall for me. I, I just don't care enough. Yeah, but I think that's kind of the beauty, right? Where it's like, you don't need to know what those things are. So you have a smaller barrier to entry when, you know, when using uh, you know, Erlang or Elixir. But uh, like you still get a lot of those amazing benefits of, uh, of immutability where you no longer need to worry about, hey, if I, if I pass this over to a function, am I going to get it back the same way that I passed it? I have no idea. So I, that is, that is a, nice, a nice guarantee and you don't need to think about it. Yeah, I often go back to this conversation that I heard between David Turner and Joe Armstrong at a conference. And it was really one of the stunning moments to me where Mr. Turner had implemented a language called Miranda. And um, that was the language for lazy computing and, and functional um, in functional development. It was heavily typed and it probably would have been the academic language for experimenting with types. And he leaned into Joe Armstrong, kind of had snuck across the room and started the conversation and said, I really did not expect what you were able to do, that you could take a dynamic language and get something that was so robust from a failover standpoint, which, which kind of tells me that there's multiple ways to solve core problems. Kind of getting back to the original problem is that if you build on top of the right primitives and you build in the right guarantees and you latch on to solving the right problems from a very basic level, that's we want to be, we want to be concurrent and we want to be reliable then there are multiple ways to get to the right problem. Ben, I, I like how the uh, the Erlang and, and Beam focused on what you just mentioned, Bruce, but then said, you know, these these other things like, you know, CPU bound work are important and we'll give you the escape hatches necessary to do those, but, you know, maybe we're not going to tackle that in, in uh, you know, in, in our project here. You could do that elsewhere and you, you have more than enough tools to get your job done, but we're going to focus on what, uh, you know, what's important for this platform. And I, I really like that approach. There's a guy named Glenn Vanderberg who's, who's pretty influential to me early on. And he gave a talk at a conference about escape hatches. And the idea is that you implement your um, API at a, at a certain level and you get about 80% of the work done, but you let people drill down to the abstraction level beneath. And Erlang does that in a couple of ways by allowing access to bare metal C. Elixir does that in some ways by allowing access to bare metal um, Erlang, and then you can kind of go up from there. Sharp knives, give sharp knives. Very cool, loving the conversation. I'm surprised that there's not as much love for, for the whole typing infrastructure that you can bring along and get some awesome benefits like proven correctness and uh, the compiler catching more errors. Um, I'm very much in the dynamic language camp. I tend to think that way, but types have always been really seductive to me. I just haven't been able to mentally make them work. I'm in a, I'm in a similar boat, uh, Bruce. Like I've, I've played with a few type languages. Um, it seems like it's just a lot of work and I don't get like a proportional amount of benefit. So I, I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I still have an open mind. I'll probably play around with like Gleam or something and, and see if I, uh, I feel differently about it. But uh, I, 
I want to put in a little bit of work and get a lot of benefit. I'm, I'm pretty lazy. So if there's a type language that lets me do that, then, you know, I'll be, uh, I'll be on board, but uh, I have yet to come across that. But do you want us all go right now? Actually, this is the one thing that I like about Go. Um, I've kind of gotten used to the static typing and I've really taken it for granted when it comes to, you know, just code readability and stuff like that. But I also kind of wonder um, if I've come to love the typing because so much else of it is unreadable and poorly documented that the typing kind of steps into a role there, but I don't know. But yeah, I, I do think that that is a really nice language feature. Or it's Stockholm syndrome, whatever, either way. Yeah, one of those two things. I've played with Crystal Lang and I like I like that. Like I, I I think Bruce, did you do that on Groxio? Do you have a module on it? I did. I did. I was able to spend some time with the creators of that language to kind of talk through what they were trying to do. And their type inference is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's a it's a really beautiful expressive language, has a pretty good standard library, and the typing is is good and it catches true errors. Like and if you need it needs your help, it'll ask you to step in but I've never found it to be too intrusive. So something to look at. Yeah, so I think that if I were building something like a, um, a currency or a security algorithm or a protocol, these are places that types could really come into play. And I think that there's another language family called uh, dependent types, which right now we can check the, that something is a list. In a dependently typed language, you can make sure that a language has a type and the type is of size 11 and bumping the size by one gives you a list of size 12, which is really, really cool, um, but really complicated. And I didn't understand anything until I saw a demo and in the editor, the guy who created the language, his name is um, Edwin Brady. And he started typing this unzip program and he, he built the type and it was just almost unreadable to me. And then he started writing the code and about 80% of the program was tab completion. It was just absolutely stunning. Yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time with statically typed languages, but I have spent some time with like C-sharp and I, I didn't hate it as such. I didn't much like .NET and the APIs and it, it was all fairly overwrought. It definitely does help you make things correct is a, to some extent. It's like once you manage to write everything so that it actually compiles, it would probably also work. It's fairly likely. <laughs> but it was also a very, very annoying process sometimes when I just wanted to get something quickly working I wasn't doing complicated stuff. And like, I always just want to get to that point. I want to create a clickable button. I want to make things happen. I don't really want to defi define interfaces for everything. I don't want to build hierarchies for everything. Like I can, I can build glorious code castles once I have something basic work. Uh, and I think there is a sweet spot that you could find where like a beam language with, with typing. I really should look at Gleam and see what they're doing. Because I think if you have the sensibilities around the beam, which are fairly pragmatic and very oriented towards being productive rather than being perfect or correct, I think there's a sweet spot you could find and 
like static analysis could definitely be more useful if the type typing was was stricter but i'm not sure i would like the language and i think this gets back to some of the escape hatches where it's like if you need absolute correctness uh you know reach for a typed language and maybe just delegate that from your elixir application or erlang application and use the beam as like an orchestration layer because it's really good at that and then you know when you need something purpose-built for a certain you know a certain job you could still reach that tool and uh you know pull it in and it's it's pretty uh it's pretty seamless well, I haven't had a chance to look at Ruby 3's types because they have they did bring in a typing optional typing system in Ruby 3, the same version that introduced the Raptor concept. But maybe they got it right. All these problems and in addition to Raptors, the, the typing is also another big headliner, but I'll have to look at it. I did want to get back to the topic really, really quick. I love this. This podcast is great because when we go off the rails, the rails are also incredible. So what the heck are we talking about? Raptors and Ruby, and what can I learn from the beam? Uh, I think the last big takeaway is the idea of pl- what I call platform harmony. I know it's a bit like touchy, you know, woo-woo a little bit almost, but I, I had a moment where I, like, I sent a message to a pin that was on a different server and it just worked. And I was like, this is really well thought out. Like I call a function, I send, I, I, you know, I send a message, like it just sort of, resolves everything. There's no special cases of like, if I'm calling this inside of a process or I'm calling this inside of a gen server, you just call stuff. And I think that's that's something that I think we can we take for granted again, because it was designed deliberately. Uh, I ran into this in when working with Ruby's, with Ruby's reactors, Sophie talked about it a little bit, when working on like just some experiments, a big part of Ruby's standard library cannot be called with reactors. And, and a lot of popular libraries can't be called with Raptors. The first experiment I tried, you know, let's spin up 10 Raptors and let's like make a web request and like aggregate the results and like, you know, show them on the screen or whatever. You can't, like you just try to use Faraday, an incredibly popular library that gets used in Ruby a ton. Can't use it because of, there's a bunch of the way it's written. It has to be rewritten so that it works. Um, or it references a, a constant and a constant needs to be written in such a way so that it works in a Raptor. There's a really, really great blog post by Kier Shatrov. I probably said that super wrong, but he talks about how to write a Raptor-based web server using like built-in WebBrick, which is part of the standard library for parsing requests. And you would think I pass in some uh, a hash from a server or a string from a server, it parses it, but you have to make so many things shareable and like be explicit about what can be shared and what can't be shared. And then that's going to be one of the big things that's going to be a huge friction point for adoption here. So I'm hoping we can figure it out. I don't think that's insurmountable. We have to change the way we write applications uh, and write our classes and write our, our supporting core code, but it's going to be work. I think it's worth it. If you look at a lot of the stuff that we got out of, of you know, just the idea of being able to call things in parallel, but it's going to have to be a concerted effort that happens like at the first and foremost at the language level, like github.com slash Ruby, like there, and then onto the, the rest of the stuff. So th- this seems like quite a large, uh, like paradigm shift for Ruby. And un- unfortunately I didn't come the, the, you know, down the Ruby path to Elixir. So I have, uh, you know, I, I could be just making stuff up here, but uh, it, it seems like this has the potential of maybe like fragmenting the ecosystem, sort of like the Python two to Python three 
you know, uh, stuff that came about. Like, do you see that way as well, where it's like you're going to have a camp of Rubyists who are like, oh, we must make all the things Raptors, and the other half of the Rubyists are like, no, it's fine the way it was, or or maybe I'm just over complicating things and making drama out of nowhere. I mean, I'm a fan of the drama, so yes, pitchforks, the whole thing. Um, I mean, I think one one thing that could happen that I think is useful, that is good, is if we had some sort of checker to see if something was Raptor compliant. You don't have to write it in Raptors if you don't want, but if we could somehow write a linter that says this library is not Raptor compliant because of these few calls here, I think that would be a good way to not fragment, right? To say, oh, you're using these constants here, you're using these like class instance variables using this funky syntax here, this won't work, and maybe maybe that's sort of like a gentle way to nudge us forward, right? Like a lot of tools are doing that now where it's like, I'm gonna build a file of all the things that are wrong in your program. You don't have to fix them now, but you need to know that they're wrong. And then you can chip away at them at some time. But I do think it behooves the Ruby community to make it, try to make Raptors work because they're a big deal. Um, there's other stuff that they've built in with like fiber schedulers, uh, which is cool where you have still a single thread, but you can time slice more efficiently for, um, certain tasks, which I think is also a big deal, but you combine those two where you have not only parallel work, but then also time sliced fibers. And I think you get something that I don't even think you have on the beam now. I'm gonna duck. Yeah, very exciting. Um, I do really like the idea of a checker though, because then it really empowers the community to drive reactor adoption. And you know, if the community feels that there's real value here and it, it sounds like this, is kind of a big deal and that there is real value here, then people are going to reach for libraries that are Raptor compliant and that's going to kind of push uh, the language and the ecosystem in that direction. Uh, Stephen, if you had to wrap up with one assessment or prediction for Raptors in Ruby, what is your parting thought? If we make this happen, it's game changing. Let's get on it. Very inspiring. Very cool. Thank you. Uh, before we close the episode, though, can we talk about glasses real quick? I just really feel the need to tell our listeners uh, all about all about the new glasses that are happening. We're gonna like hashtag not sponsored. What are, what are we doing here? Oh yeah. Okay. So this is not this is not like obviously paid sponsorship. Um, but Stephen turned me on to Zinni Zinni glasses, uh, which is kind of like Orby Parker except super cheap. So you can just get like a ton of really fun pairs, and they do like the anti fog. And the transitions lenses, which I would like to claim that I single-handedly brought back like two years ago. Now they're everywhere. I had them first. I really think I did. Um, so I kind of just went crazy and I got like, I think two pairs of frames and a pair of sunglasses and they tint the lenses different colors. So I'm getting pink fog resistant prescription sunglasses for like 30 bucks. Um, again, not a paid sponsorship. I'm just really excited. And I wanted to thank Steven for telling me that our insurance covers this and that it's super cheap to begin with. So stay tuned for more glasses updates and or get yourself some fun glasses. And I think with that personal note, I will close this episode. Thank you everyone. And thank you in particular to Steven, as well as thank you to our sponsor Grazia, which as you guys know, I'm sure by this point is career fuel for programmers. All right. Catch you guys next time on Beam Radio.